Hey guys, welcome back to Profitable Property Management. Today I have Ray Hespin on the show. We're doing a deep dive on maintenance, metrics, money, the stuff that really matters, diving into the dissection of the underlying causal factors that either contribute to maintenance performance or jam it up. And let's be real, maintenance is a really big part of the job, not only for running your business efficiently, but also for providing your customers the kinds of NOI and operational efficiency that they're looking for. Of course, of course, we had a great time along the way, and uh, I'm looking forward to having you watch this episode and just see what it looks like to see two guys jamming in this game. Welcome to the episode of the Profitable Property Management Podcast. I'm here with my man, Ray Hespin. Ray, third time on the podcast. That's uh, that's a record here. That's an honor is what it is for I'm, me. I'm glad to have- <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for clarifying, right? I just wanted to make sure it that really I didn't sound- ambiguous. I really didn't want to sound like a prick there, just in case it was like a little concerning what I was saying. I was like- Thank you, actually. That's what I was trying to say. Well, there I is, need to be better communicated. There is a reason that I had you back on. I want to talk shop. I want to chop it up, talk about the industry in general. I also want to take talk a little bit about maintenance data, stats, mm. and benchmarks. I've mm. had the pleasure of watching your career progress over time. I've seen what you've been aimed at long term, and I've also seen you get closer as you're kind of working your way up the mountain. Let's just zoom out all the way. If we are ignoring a specific piece of software someone could use, if we just look at the highest level, how you and I create value in the industry, what is the evidence for your customer that demonstrates that you're getting value? What's the thing you're trying to augment that matters to them? So the thing that I think, you know, if you say, what is the most important thing for a software company? It's to grow customer, you know, increase your customer base and to keep them. That's it. That's my job. Um, and I think if you ask that question in the property management industry, I don't think we've had candidly a lot of clarity. It was like, it was more of what's my job, which is my job is to manage properties. My job is to fill them. My job is to collect rent. My job is to maintain them. But I think as we're getting more mature in our industry, we realize that our job to be done is to retain investors and grow the number of ones that we bring in. And so I think as we've gotten more clarity on that, you can kind of like move down and say out of software, like what do you do that contributes to those two things? And you've got to build a draw line. So for maintenance, for us, um, we know there's a good correlation for investor renewal. Um, based on annual maintenance per, uh, maintenance spend per unit and resident sat. So everything below those two is what we work on. So maintenance spend, annual maintenance spend per unit against rent roll. So mm -hmm. a percent mm -hmm. and then uh, resident satisfaction. There's a lot that goes below those two, but those are the two like high high ones. You and I had a conversation years ago where we were discussing the impact that a property manager could make that would allow them to say with confidence to an owner, to an investor, you're better off working with me financially. Whole picture. <clears throat> Not just 
relieving a burden. You'll sleep better at night. I mean, there's there's value there, but that is not the same thing as saying that this is actually a positive sum rather than a zero sum game. How has your thinking evolved around the argument that a professional property manager can make to demonstrate the economic value of their services? You know, I, I think one of the things is because this industry is still so new, not being a landlord, professional property management is still so new. Like we're still in education phase, like that we have to still continue to educate the industry and we can absolutely not skip that step. Um, you think about, you know, if I were to sit there and go back to 1920 and say, you know what's really important? Preventative care um, for your healthcare. They'd be like, uh, go pound sand, dude. I'm not spending money on any of that. I don't see the value of that. I don't see whatever. But as we've gone over in time and we've learned about, you know, healthcare costs and longevity and we correlate it back, we sit there and go, wow, preventative care is really important. And I think if you ask anybody today, they would be like, hey, that obviously is very important. And here's how it helps my cost down. The education has already been out there. And so in property management, they're still in this stage where they have to sit there and make the case and go, here is what you're looking at out the gate of what you're going to be doing. Here's the risks, here's the revenue opportunities, and here's all the leverage you can move it. By the way, you can't do about 75% of that well. And so I think that's like the big part of where we're still at. And I don't know how much we've moved the needle on, but I think like making sure we do not skip that part, super important in our industry and why we still have retention conversations with investors still is because they don't know they're going to generate 0.4 service issues per unit per month. They're going to spend 12% against rent roll annually. They're going to experience 5% vacancy rate. They don't know any of that. They just see a bill for a hot water tank and they're sitting there going, that's what, what the hell? I didn't know that was supposed to break. And so I think that's the, that's the part where I think we're still in battleground candidly. It's not contextualized. Right. So the contextualization, there's a lot there. It's part data, but there's banner blindness. People get immune to, to data if there's too much of it. Part of it is the story and the narrative. Part of it is the contextually like, <clears throat> hey, this work order, here's what happened. You've recently rolled out some benchmarks and data, which is, hey, man, huge turn on to me. Mm -hmm. You know how I feel about this stuff. It's been transformative for the industry. And there's a lot of different areas in which it applies. It applies with the finances. It applies with the specific uh, use case and processes in each area. I'm curious, what have you found that was unexpected? Some of the conclusions, I'm sure, were obvious. But in the recent release of insights and the underlying data beyond it, what did you find that maybe was <clears throat> somewhat counterintuitive? You know, I so I think what like you even did with the NARPM accounting standards, it's you're standardizing data to all look at it the same way. I think that's like part of the big challenge. And then the second part is how are you now doing against your your competition or your competitors? Otherwise, you're living in paradigm. So that's what I think is really important about benchmarking is really two steps. It's standardization and then it's like comparing. Um, so I think when we really went in, I think the biggest thing that I found is when you're looking at entire customer segments and we've got, you know, over half a million rental units that are running 2.6 million service issues per year through, um, you realize the difference between world-class and good is exponential and the difference between good and bottom quartile is exponential. 
And so I think that was kind of surprising to me. There's a huge gap between layers of performance in the group that admittedly, I think when you look at all the data and you don't chop it up like we did when we started doing quartiles, you don't realize how far apart some mm. are. That was pretty, candidly, pretty mind-blowing. You, um, you just would have thought a little less variance. A little less variance. I would have thought there would have been a little less variance. And so talk to me, like, give me a stat. What And what kind of variance are we talking about? <clears throat> so uh, let's talk uh, resident, uh, resident sat, for example. Um, so we kind of have broken things down into, like, we try to create buckets because the reality is, like, top quartile is a statistical term. Nobody gives a crap about that. Mm -hmm. Like, um, But... So we have like world-class, which is top 5%. We have good, which is top quartile, top 25%. We have average, middle of the road. You're right in the middle, right at 50%. And then you're below average, 25%, bottom quartile. <clears throat> so if you take something like uh, speed of repair, I'll just go, I'll do speed of repair on this one. I think the top quartile or the world-class is run like 1.2 days. Good is like 3.4 days. Average is like 5.6 days. I'm going kind of off the top. It varies by mm. time. And then below average will be like 12 days. Mm. Mm. Ouch. Like, so I think that was one where I was like surprised where it was like, there is a huge variance between all of them. And you know, <clears throat> it's not just limitation in data because it carries consistently. We've been capturing data since 2018. Mm. We can go back. The variance has always existed pretty consistently. That's amazing. Yeah. One of the things that I know about publishing data is that you publish it and what do people have for you? <clears throat> Little golf clap and a million freaking questions of like more follow-up questions about the data. <clears throat> As you say that, the obvious thing that comes to mind is like, what is actually driving that? And you can imagine that when somebody doesn't fit within the one of those upper quartiles, you get feedback like, well, that's good for you, Ray, because you're in South Dakota, but I'm in <clears throat> Svalbard, Antarctica, and over here, that's not possible. How do you tease out and make this accessible so that people feel like that they're <clears throat> really benchmarking against whatever feels like a true peer for them? So so in our benchmark, you can seg segment it by regions, <clears throat> and we're going to continue to add granularity when you get in tighter and tighter into market. It's like, there's enough data points exist for a market we can keep getting smaller and smaller in there but i think right now we've got it broken up in seven regions so you can you can go say i'm in canada how would i do and we don't have an, as much data in canada as say like the southeast right so you can kind of get like a, a quadrant of the southeast and be like how are we comparative you know because they're having hvac issues hit at different times mm -hmm. right and different things so we got we got some there but i think like that element of like, how do you make it actionable? I think this is probably one of the hardest ones for a lot of people. So we spent some time sitting there going, and even with our own team members, like, hey, our customer success manager, how do they help a customer who's trying to move a number or say, I don't like how that one is? Where do we need to go down the rabbit hole to find this? Mm -hmm. So one of the things that, that we put out was really our framework of how do you think about maintenance foundationally and building up and it's our ladder of maintenance excellence. It starts with, you know, communication and engagement, right? How fast do people respond to what they need to? And then you can move to scheduling efficiency. And then once you get to scheduling, you staffing, it moves on. But the thing that we built out is we said, you know, there almost needs to be a flow diagram that if this thing's broken, what are all the things that can impact that? And you can follow it. If these things are broken, what are all the things that can follow that? 
So the idea behind it is we've actually taken some of these metrics that we've surfaced and we've built a roadmap that you can actually follow and say, if this thing is wrong, a customer success manager, a brand new maintenance coordinator, a broker owner, a VP of whatever can start going and digging into the data and go, I've got a problem here that's causing investor retention issues. I need to know exactly what to fix. And that roadmap will provide it in addition to the fact that the data exists now. Can you stack rank for me the top two? What's at the top of the list of the most common <clears throat> causal factors? Um, so I'll, I'll pick the top five uh, that we put up on what we call like the big metrics to watch for. So we put it on our overview page. Um, it's basically resident satisfaction. It's a great lighting indicator of how happy you are, which is a good indicator for renewing leases, which is a good indicator for uh, owner retention. The second one is speed of repair. It's one of the best leading indicators for resident sat. Third one, annual maintenance spend per unit, or at least the pace, how you're running at the pace. The fourth one, uh, we put together an index called vendor health. How healthy is your vendor network? Which basically is inclusive of, are they doing the work fast? Are they making the residents happy? Or are you being priced fairly? And then the last one is technician utilization rate. For those that run internal technicians, it's what determines whether you're gonna be profitable or lose money. Those five are the ones that we say, pay attention to. Um, over everything. Is it fair to say that the bottom four drive the first resident sat? The, uh, re resident sat is, what do you mean the bottom four? The, the f you listed five. Is it mm. fair to say that four through five directly <clears throat> impact number one? No, annual spend per maintenance is not. Um, that's not necessarily it. And tech technician utilization rate is probably not just because they're more of like, how efficient are you about executing? It's less hinged on speed. Let's dig into one, speed of repair. What yeah. most commonly drives lag or acceleration there? So there's a really cool thing that we put out. So this is back to that like flow. What all impacts speed of repair? And I think a lot of people think, well, um, it's if my vendor does it fast, who's obvious, or my technician does it fast. But especially as you think about um, seasonality, it's how fast from the time you get it is the time you troubleshot it to the time you give it to somebody. How fast from the time you gave it to them to the time you schedule and how fast from that till they actually physically complete the repair. And all those happen to be hinged on, do you have enough vendors in the particular category? Do you have enough technicians? Is their throughput adequate? So that's where like speed of repair can be impacted by about five to six things that you need to be able to go dig in and understand, is this healthy, is this healthy? This one's red. I need to go get more plumbers, very specifically. That's what's killing me right now. It makes sense that it'd be a bit of a spider web that you have to fully <clears throat> untangle. Vendor management, let's talk a little bit about that. Best practices, obviously it's one of those things where there's a natural tension between not giving enough work at the point that the vendor doesn't care, giving them so much work that they drown in it, what do you see as being the the heart of what it looks like to do that well? You know, so that that vendor health score is really important. Like vendor health, like how healthy is your vendor network? And really, again, it's back to are the residents happy with the work? Are they getting it done quickly? And are your prices being fair? And so if you look at all those and you're below market, it means you've got a hole somewhere. But you've got plumbers, you've got HVAC. Um, you, it may be a problem with particular vendors, or it may be a fact that you don't have enough of a certain type. And so you need information to start making those decisions. 
So one of the things that we've even instituted in our Insights Pro, it's kind of like if you want to geek out and go dig in, um, the ability to know if you assign a uh, vendor a ton of work, are they going to get it done quickly? And when are they going to get bogged down? That is really hard to know. That means I need to know how fast you take the job and how far out are you scheduling? I need to know that. For me to make the decision, do I give work to somebody else? As an example of that. That makes a ton of sense. How far <laughs> out are you scheduling? Can, can you tell me more about that? And like why, the, why there would be a breaking point there? Yeah, so like a lot of the times we've seen people only be like, hey, I just don't know if Tom's handyman service can take any more work. How do you know that? Tom's handyman could take a million more service issues or you could have uh, uh, Bill's plumbing that only has five that is taking forever, mm. right? And so the ability for you to see, am I giving too much work and being able to see when it's starting to break mm. is your ability to start monitoring and managing that to say, do I got a problem with the vendor? Do I got a problem with that particular category of vendor? And being able to measure that and see it in real time is really important. Um, so that way you can react quickly. That would make a ton of sense. If somebody had a bunch of excess capacity on the side, which they wouldn't because Jen, like who's trying to run their business that way. <clears throat> but if they did, you'd keep feeding them more work and it would all get scheduled fairly promptly. If they don't, then naturally it proportionally gets scheduled out. Right. That makes sense. Yeah. And it's, you know, and so if you really think about vendors, you're optimizing for speed, satisfaction, and fair price, right? And so we're just talking about speed and satisfaction right now, right? And being able to see, again, I think one of the misconceptions can be is like, I get a vendor that gets bad ratings. Does that mean they're doing a bad job? Or does that mean they just have too many jobs and you're assigning way too much work? So the ability to both look at it, both on an individual from like capacity standpoint, and then just like, how good is their service quality? Being able to differentiate those tells you if you just have a category issue versus an individual vendor issue. And that's again, really important to be able to pinpoint that as opposed to just make assumptions. Um, the last part of that being obviously like financial, right? If you're getting, you know, if somebody's really, really, really fast, mm. but they're blowing you out of the water on costs like you got to be able to kind of marry all those three and we talk about like vendor that insights page specifically that looks for that is optimizing for speed satisfaction and cost management your job is not to make the vendor get more throughput i mean as much as we like to think property meld helps with that um that's all you're managing as a property manager buffett and munger talk about the idea of not knowing how to train great managers but being really good at spotting them. Part mm. of what I hear you saying is the idea of how do you find great vendors may be less important than tracking the performance of the ones that you actually have, using data, whatever tools you can to prognosticate here. When you think about policy frameworks, approaches, the soft skills of interacting with, with, with vendors, we're talking about the data. What mm. about that piece, though? What about that piece, the human policy values framework of how to interact with, with those partners? You, you know, I, I can't say, cause I, I don't manage a bunch of vendors. I've managed vendors in my past life. Everybody wants to know how they're doing. Feedback. Feedback and um, treating people fairly. And so I think unless you have that sort of stuff, it makes it kind of difficult to have a meaningful relationship in some of those things. And so um, I know in our platform, I think there's somewhere around 50,000 vendors that use property meld. It's pretty significant. And like one of the questions that we'll get is like, how are we doing? 
And so that's one of the beautiful values that you can start adding to a vendor is saying, here's where you're at. Here's how your satisfaction is, how your speed is, how your lead time is. You can start actually giving that out. Now I can start giving you value as a vendor. And you know what? You're a vendor working for me, uh, ABC Property Management Company. I've got this visibility for you. Mm. And you might actually like the fact that I know that better than somebody who doesn't. Um, and so I think it's about finding ways to add the value of that. Now, again, I'm soft skills wise. I've seen customers do amazing things, vendor appreciation, vendor brunches, vendor breakfast, uh, you know, just recognition in general seems to be something that doesn't go away. I haven't seen those programs burn out. So I think the principle stands. Maintenance is obviously a significant contributor to overall NOI. Back mm. to this conversation of how do you make this, how do you make the financial argument that people should be working with a third-party property manager? What, amidst this sea of stats, do you see most directly correlate to NOI? Um, so the annual maintenance spend per unit is the best one. So if you think about NOI, and just for people who aren't familiar, it's net operating income of a rental property. So your net operating income, you take rent, you subtract vacancy, uh, then you subtract your insurance, your maintenance costs, your leasing, your HOA fees, all that sort of stuff. And you're left with your net operating income. Maintenance is the second largest operating expense right outside property taxes, um, which we can't control. And so what we've realized in our data, and I think we're up to somewhere around 300,000 investors around the platform. So we get to kind of see some interesting behaviors of like, what are the cause and effect relationships that lead to a investor going year and renewing versus a year and churning, two years and renewing versus two years and churning, so on and so forth. And one of the things that we've discovered is the two things that make them go and this makes ton of sense as why property managers, why would anybody get a property manager, is how much are you costing to maintain the property? Basically it. And that comes to how much are you spending to fix it? And if you turn over a resident, guess what? I've also got to pay again. How much are you costing me to keep somebody in there and paying rent is really what it comes down to. And so I think as we as an industry, and it kind of comes back to that education, can you landlord, who don't have vendor relationships, who do not have connections, who do not have standardized pricing, who do not have risk mitigation, who do not have uh, mechanisms and systems to prevent a lawsuit from negligence of a maintenance issue. Do you have all of that that's going to give you a predictable return in the long run? And I'm a huge advocate for property, professional property management have done well. It's really hard to make a case for, but we have to keep moving that needle to make it more and more compelling financially and education that makes that the obvious choice of investment. You get what you're focusing on. The way that you frame the conversation lends itself to what conversation we're having. Mm. You hear folks on, on occasion use terms like asset management, which is kind of an, an homage to the fact that this is an asset. It's not just mm. a group of services. I'm not a gopher. I'm not an errand boy. I am stewarding your biggest financial asset. That orientation obviously lends itself towards driving and focusing on financial performance. Pivoting a little bit to the company side of your company, just running a business, yeah. being an entrepreneur. How far are you into this journey now of entrepreneurship? How many years? Seven, seven years. Yeah. <laughs> Does it show? Is it your seventh year? <laughs> All right. I, I do got to say one thing, by the way, on the last comment 
about the property management. Sorry, I want to keep Please. going dumb. I think we're making a big mistake as an industry of calling them owners. Tell me. I think we should be calling every single one of them investors. I don't even think we should change the name. Like, I don't think we should acknowledge that you're an owner. You're an investor. It's an asset. It's an asset. And you're an investor. Because I think one of the things that I used to joke at, and there's a couple of people that I talked to, is like the goal of property management is to get their customers to go to a party and to say, what do you do? And you want them to say their job. And I'm also a real estate investor. Mm. And everything around communication to them should be conditioning them from the time you get them in the door to saying that because that means they're going to stay. They're going to understand why that hot water heater is expensive. And then they're going to buy another property when they can. It's funny that we almost kind of do this to ourselves, right? We're, we happen right now to be in Austin at a investor-focused event of some larger operators, but I almost make up that we tend to relate to accidentals as owners and think of like investors as people that own <clears throat> 10 plus properties. But really, that's just a matter of framing. Here's the shortcut. Retail investor, this is what I say. You're a retail investor. Uh, You're an institutional investor. <laughs> <laughs> like in property ball, I've been advocating to change the owner side to its investor. There's some, I mean, we've got to do some A-B testing there, but I, I think we got to start that conversation, but you're right. hundred percent. Sorry. I love it. What are you learning in your seventh year of being an operator? How long is this podcast? <laughs> uh, you know, I think uh, first and foremost, I, I learned I didn't know it all. Um, I was a smart guy, but uh, you can get kicked in the teeth so many times before you realize that you got some things to learn. I think that, too, I've realized how important it is to develop people um, and really honing that skill and just the byproduct of that, like how it'll pay. And then the last and probably first most important thing is getting to see businesses around me, whether they succeed or maybe don't. How much do you obsess about the customer's problems? And when you start to stray away from that, even a little bit, the consequential impacts that can happen. And so I would say probably those are the absolute most important things that I've learned. So you, in your day-to-day, -day, we tend to carry around frameworks that are not explicitly articulated, but they very much inform our decision-making process. Mm. In leadership and management specifically, what are some of the beat-on durable frameworks that you call upon to guide your decision-making? Um, so <clears throat> so I'll, I'll, I think one thing that's really important is like coming up with frameworks is really a great way for somebody who's very good at something to train somebody else. So when you talk about people development, the ability to articulate what you do, right? Like if I was sitting there and say, Jordan, how do you become such a great podcaster? How do you ask such great questions? Now, the reality is you're inherently good at it, but there's probably some things if you were to map back on yourself, Nick, what do you consistently do that happens every single time that you can give somebody else make, you need to do this. They're probably going to be a lot better at it. And so like, let's say for, uh, for selling software, um, why do they have to buy? You need to know that if you work at property mill and you're in sales, mm. because that means, you know, their problems mm. is like, that is the question. Um, I think, uh, one of the other, one of the other things like, 
Um, we we have a, a core value of property meld and it's called loyalty. It's customer loyalty. Sounds super gimmicky, but I am actually fanatical about the explainer sentences. The customer is not always right, but their problem is always real. And so when we're sitting there making a decision, like we're going to develop feature or a customer's asking for something, what problem does, does this solute, does this solve? Like you need to be able to answer those. So those are some examples of some frameworks, but I think, you know, kind of back to being obsessed about the customer and their problem is like all those things are in place to make sure that we defend that. Right. So 70 people now, and, uh, it's really hard to get everybody in the organization to care about them as much unless you implement those sorts of frameworks. When you say problem, what comes to mind to me is thinking about pain in the context of discovery. Mm -hmm. You are a consummate salesman. I've mm -hmm. noticed that every founder has a hard skill, the thing that they kind of leverage to get in position, and they do much more than that. Mm -hmm. But at its core, if you were going to go, you know, God forbid, carry a bag and just do something to mm -hmm. um, provide for your family, it's likely one specific thing. Sales is kind of your thing. And in our many discussions about sales, I have noticed your obsession with pain. And I feel like it's very easy to kind of gloss over this and think like, that's nice. Oh, discover. Yeah, that's a good thing. Why are you so maniacally focused on making sure that your sales staff who's new to the industry, maybe isn't familiar with a ton of selling prior to that? Why do you guide them back to pain specifically? <clears throat> so there's, there's two things. And then I'll tell you why I have to defend it so much. So uh, two things. One, it is the absolute best way to learn about this industry. I was thinking about like when I was sitting there going back, because I've obviously gotten involved in a lot of product. I ask a million questions to people. Why is that? Why are you doing that? Like if you want to tell somebody what you're doing and tell them how it's exciting, you learn nothing. And that's what's really helped me launch off. Think about what products are going to be in the white space. It's, an, it's the legitimately best way you're going to learn about the business, be able to provide the most value hands down. So that's one. Two, foundationally, nobody buys a, a drill bit. And I think like that's been the analogy. They buy a hole and they buy a, uh, that hole being drug into concrete or whatever. And then that's, that's where the drill bit comes in. If you walked up and said, you need a drill bit, nobody's going to buy it. It's like, what problem do you need to fix with a drill bit? You have to first go there. And if you don't have one, they ain't going to be a happy customer. You don't know how to service them. There's nothing you can do. And so being obsessed is really important to make sure that they're, they're actually wanting to solve something and buy something. And the reason why it's so interesting is because a lot of the times we, I think we get really excited because at Property Meld, when somebody sees a demo of ours and they sit there and go, oh my goodness, they see pain melting away and they go, this is great. Our team can sometimes get fascinated and they think the software does the thing, but it's not. You just want to sell them at that point. You Well, you want to sit there and go, oh, you're, you're correlating that you're giving me my feedback that my software is great. Therefore, it's the software being great. It's not. That work that you did where you really got to understand and then their problems and you really got them to articulate it and remember them. That's why they're ooing aahing at your software is because they're seeing those go away. And so if you skip that part, right? And the hard part is, right? I'm getting the feedback loop at the moment. So I think showing you the software is what makes it great is not the moment that I quit understanding your problems and helping you find those problems. 
is the moment they quit ooing and aahing at your software. And so going back, it's really important to make sure it's just we're wired to map patterns. When we get a reaction doing something, this one is wrong because it's actually understanding their pain and getting them to understand mm. their pain that actually gave that. Mm. So it's kind of a mm. disconnect. So that's why it has to be defended and why it's almost naturally people think that the, what workflow you built or feature you built is fantastic. It's not. It's about what goes away. And if you don't get that, they won't do an audit the feature. They won't do an audit the product. And your people won't even build the right stuff. So I think that's why the defensibility is so important um, to pain. And it's always what we come back to in the end, right? When a deal falls apart, when a situation blows up, when a customer signs up enthusiastically, enthusiastically and six months later they churn out. What are we going back to? What Did we get the pain right? Did we, did we get Oh, the... that field was blank. <laughs> the problem... <laughs> What was the problem? I thought they just wanted to use software. Nobody wants to, bro. I think it was really funny. There was an industry report. I won't say which one. It's a very well-renowned one. And be like, what things, like, what things are you targeting next year? Mm. And it was like implementing technology. And I thought it was one of the the dumbest things to ask because nobody goes out seeking to implement technology right increase spend increase <laughs> yeah, subscription I would spend. like to just log into something more please <laughs> and so i was sitting there going like this is a ridiculous question nobody's doing this but i think that's kind of the mindset they think that technology is exciting it's not it's the thing that goes away because of technology that's really cool well one thing that is exciting about retail software solutions is that it provides people the opportunity to compete with larger incumbents larger new players coming into this space there's always the build versus buy debate as i con conduct these interviews i'm talking to all gambits all walks stripes and varieties including the occasional uh prop tech SaaS service hybrid Mm. Ray, if you were building your own property management company, let's just say sometime down the road in another life, you get you get the itch. You just you wonder, you want to test yourself. Could I do it? Could I successfully grow a property management company? <laughs> if you did, Ray, <clears throat> walk me through this scenario of your approach and specifically given that you run a software company and this mm. is within your wheelhouse. How would you approach the build versus buy conversation? Oh man. So it is important as an entrepreneur. I think when we started property meld, I was a little confused as to why somebody wasn't doing this. And that actually kind of terrified me. When we first were like, Hey, we should automate a lot of these things. And it was like, but who else is nobody. It was kind of like, is that because this is the dumbest idea in the world? Uh, there's usually market validation to some things. And so the first thing that I would probably do if I was an operator is one, I prioritize the value of focus. Being an operator in this business is incredibly difficult, primarily because it's new. There's no, uh, there's no in international standard of measurement. There's no ISOs. The KPIs, I mean, we're figuring them out right now and giving them to the industry. Um, there's no SOPs that everybody's adopted. Like everybody is figuring it out. And that's incredibly difficult. Like being an operator in this business is incredibly difficult. So that's probably why I wouldn't start a property management business to start with. It is difficult. So that's hard. Building a software company, I'll vouch for it, is also incredibly difficult. As a matter of fact, the amount of software companies that make it, you know, the the standard of measurement that's kind of used to grade software companies, like how many, how much ARR, you make it past a million ARR, you're like a dream. You're one of 400.
you make a best 10 million ARR, you're like, I forget what it is. It's like a hundredth of that. It's so, a low probability situation. It's a low probability. So then when you say, hey, I want to actually do both. You're multiplying those odds together. And I think the symptom that you see and probably what I would look at is who else has done this successfully. And there's a lot of great operators out there. And I think this is one of the things I had a conversation recently. There has to be a win somewhere for people to keep thinking that this is a reasonable investment. To model off of it and say that an investor coming in and spending money, they're gonna put money in this thing because the outcome's gonna be far superior because of the way this is done. And I don't think we have one. I mean, that could be me, I could be wrong. I don't think we have one yet. I, I'm not aware, I'm not here to chime in and contradict yeah. you, I'm not aware. So I think that would scare me, but I also know because there are so many property management companies, there's a lot of really brilliant tech people in property management the outcome is there. And so I think people are figuring out potentially, let's go figure out and own a very specific part. That's a lot less risk, mm -hmm. something that's a strategic differentiator, but going and being a software company and a property management company is just, just incredibly challenging, I think. A corollary conversation is around openness in the industry amongst the retail software suite options that are available for folks to kind of construct their own homebrew thing to compete against a larger national player that's doing everything in-house. When you look at the suite available, integration has been a, a desire for years. It's happened, but it's happened late. It hasn't happened as aggressively as it could. Mm -hmm. Do you see market forces driving more of this over time? I mean, the free market appears to be very clear in its desire for as much access, openness, exchange and sharing as possible. But it clearly hasn't happened at the pace that's desired. Where do you see this heading and where does it intersect with our clients? <clears throat> So what's great about property management, and I love to think like Insights was like this beautiful idea or like uh, KPIs is this great idea to run. You can actually just take it copy and paste from other industries. Um, integrations and marketplaces also are pretty common like in a lot of other software industries. And I think it's still just once again, evident of how young we are in this industry. Like it wasn't that long ago, you didn't have PMS systems. You didn't have property management accounting softwares. You just had QuickBooks. That's what you had in Excel. That's new. It's still relatively new to where it became market saturation. And now we kind of reach that. You see these best of breed softwares coming up to like tackle very specific problems. And so if you look at, you know, uh, other mega companies, Salesforce, they did some, the same thing. They were a CRM. They were one of the earlier prominent CRMs. And then eventually they kind of had to do the same thing. A lot of these people chomping at the thing, they can't build everything well and they've got to integrate. And so I think we're seeing this marketplace take off. And then once you do, the cat's out of the bag. You can't stop, basically. Um, so I think we're going to keep going there, but that's ultimately why. I don't think people create marketplace first. I think the market has to demand it aggressively, which I think was in our case. It's transformed last two years. Oh, yeah. Pretty significantly. Yeah. It had happened before that, but in terms of it actually getting acceleration, it feels like in the last year in particular is where yeah. things started to continue. And I see it as being an absolute net net positive for everybody, for all parties. I mean, obviously for the PM specifically, but even downstream, the people that their customers customer, it's definitely transforming the way business is done. Yeah, absolutely. I agree with you. 
In terms of your journey as an entrepreneur, where you're headed, what you're trying to build, when I think about where I get meaning from the business day to day, it's not modeling out some giant paycheck in the sky. It's really about the people that I'm interacting with, the conversations that I'm having, the quality of my own learning and progress. What drives and motivates you that has absolutely nothing to do with money? So you're talking about frameworks. Um, I think one of the frameworks that I've kind of picked up or refined or at least been able to put into buckets is I think everybody contains values. Like what do they value? How do they derive value? Um, and so there's five that are, that I've kind of put everything in. So one of them is financial. And so you do have to realize, and you want salespeople to be in that bucket. Absolutely. Uh, you want them there. Um, two, uh, work-life balance. Do I want to just make sure that I'm, you know, relaxed? I don't have to think about work that much. Uh, personal development. Do you get to learn? Like when you learn, you, you derive immense, uh, value. There is, uh, uh, affirmation because of what you do, you get rewarded verbally and you get celebrated. And then there's, um, impact, like the ability to when, help a community, help an employee, help somebody who's like new to the job and they get a career that they never got. And so basically you stack rank those things and you can do it with about anybody and you can know how, like what they're going to like to do and what they're not right. Um, or what they're going to be good at. So I had to do this own exercise for me because I know, you know, there's an element of what am, what am I getting out of this? My sick addict to try and do this. But um, my top two is I love my personal development. I get to learn something new all the time. And my job changes. I've had the same title for seven years. My job has been different every single year. And I get to learn something new. So that's one of them. And then the second one is impact. There is nothing that makes me happier, feel better um, than when you get somebody who wins. Um, that didn't expect to win. And like, I can push through a lot of crap when I have somebody who, who got their chance, got their shot, mm. they won. Mm. And like, that's straight up fuel that's injected right into the veins. I'm ready to come back to work tomorrow. <laughs> Seeing people on the come up. Uh, yeah. We yeah. call it helping people become and achieve more than they, th they thought possible internally. Yeah. Mm. And it can sound a little, little out there. Is that real? Is that true? It can be. I've seen it firsthand. Does it happen every time? Nope, definitely not. Is it no. guaranteed? Nope. Is it possible? Yeah, yeah, it is. And it's really intensely gratifying to watch and be a part of to think that I could build a container that could be responsible for that. Man, I'm I'm totally there with you. Yeah. What about you? Oh, great question. Um, I'd have to say it's pretty much the same thing. The idea of helping people become and achieve more than they thought possible, it bleeds over into personal for me. Mm -hmm. It's an idea that will it impact the performance of the business? Yes. But in the act of doing that, in the act of getting better, my goal is to hold it with a, the kind of posture that it will bleed life in other areas of my life. Let me give you an example. I think about the conversational discomfort that is required to face and accept the plain truths that come up every day, many of which I don't like. Yeah. Sales are down. We screwed screwed up such and such with the customer. It's easier to ignore it. It's easier to softball it. And that easiness comes from the disposition and the story that we have about these facts. If we didn't have any, if we didn't ascribe any meaning, it would just be a bag of facts. It's the story that we come up with that creates either the embrace 
or the friction, my growth has looked like having less story, less attachment, and more curiosity about what's happening. And me holding work situations in that way is really these same dynamics that I hold things in personal relationships and in a marriage with my kids. Outside of that, it's that holistic integration that is the thing that makes me feel so good about being about being here and really being all in and mm. wanting to win. It's what it's what helps me <clears throat> affirm the fact that this is not just a multi-decade life pursuit of money, which at a certain point, how can that really be the thing that's yeah. number one? For me, it isn't. And we don't have to get into this, but I'm almost convinced everybody can tie back to their childhood. I think so too. <laughs> like my parents believed that incessantly that I could do anything that I wanted to, and they believed in me, and I give them so much credit for that. And we grew up, I mean, I didn't realize this, but I was like, man, I shopped at a secondhand store most of my life. Like, oh, we didn't have a lot of money, did we, mom and dad? But uh, but I think like they gave, they did a great job as parents giving me my shot and they believed in me and they instilled in me. And then when I found a way I can win, it was like, man, so it's all that tooling. It's like, mm. they, they did that mm. for me mm. or somebody mm. else did that for me. It's that, that, that same, you're trying to recreate that same feeling or moment you, you had, I think. Accessibility. I feel like that for me it's a very clear example of how the option set for me shifted everything in my life. My parents divorced when I was young. My mom remarries. The guy that she remarries is an entrepreneur. What I perceived was an entrepreneur. He was more of a producer in a sales position. Um, but that was on the menu because he came into my life. Mm. He didn't tell me to do it. In fact, I really wasn't encouraged to do it. But I saw it on the menu and I thought, I could do that might as well. And if it hadn't been on the menu, maybe, you know, there would have been some kind of dreams and they would have been small, but it's really just like the option set that is normalized available for you, whether it's hooliganism or whether it's sports or whatever it may be is so determinative. Mm. I think about that all the time, man. Oh, environment tends to overwhelm most other factors. So at some point, let's geek out and let's do a podcast on hiring for childhood questions to find out things about me. there's something there there's a science there that i'm convinced of yeah i think you're probably right i think a lot does go back to the childhood i heard somebody say emotions are like children you can either love them or shun them and they'll respond accordingly mm. my experience has been that most folks grow up in a household and i'm doing this to some degree it's it's both inescapable and something to be really aware of is the feeling that um, connection will either be given or withdrawn depending on whether or not you do or do not engage in a certain set of behaviors. Mm -hmm. And that is profoundly <clears throat> impactful to how we show up. I, I, I hire, so there, there's this concept of hiring for high potentials and I have thought through one of those things is grit. And one of the things that I've realized, um, I was just on the plane. I got to sit next to this guy, brilliant guy. He like, super high up at like a fortune 50 company mm. like and so anyways we were talking about this and it was like how do you hire for stuff like this i happen to be sitting next to him anyways <clears throat> we were talking about grit like the ability to run towards a problem mm. and the people like mm. that and the thing that i've discovered is i've like worked with enough people and i would like i remember this one I had a team member she's incredible and i gave her a compliment like and i'm not a big compliment giver like 
like I'm very intentional about compliments and I could just watch the uncomfortableness of like accepting that. And I was sitting there going like, you accept compliments like I do, don't you? And then we got into talking about childhood and like the thing that I learned from that conversation is like, is like, like emotional reactions weren't rewarded as children. Mm. And you can almost ask the question, be like, hey, you fell down on your bike, what'd your parents do? Well, they came and picked me up, of course. Or did they say, don't cry, don't cry, get up, right? <laughs> like, that's it. <laughs> Pretty determinative. And, and then the crazy thing is that I would like go and know the people that I do know are gritty as hell. I would sit there and be like, what was childhood like? And it all maps. It's like parents did not reward emotional reactions and it allows them. And I don't know, I'm, I'm not a psychologist, but I think there's some wiring in there that prevents your lower brain from taking over and being like, hey, be logical, push through. There's an end to this. You're gonna learn something, right? Or discipline, something there. Mm. But anyways, you, yeah. You're making me feel a little more complicated in my relationship with grit. I am such a pro-grit guy. I'd like to think you can get there without traumatizing your kid in the process. <laughs> I don't think it's that. I think the idea is we all are emotional creatures. You think about it, you as an adult, if you were to start here and just start crying because, you know, the air conditioner broke, I'd be like, Jordan, grow up, dude, right? Like I do that as an adult because that's what you have to be as an adult. And I think there's probably some formative years where you try to condition a little bit of that when you're younger to say, quit being a baby, the air conditioning's fine. The air conditioning's perfect, by the way. Excellent. So I don't think it's that. I, I don't think it's there. It's just when you have an emotional reaction, you help that kid train to go, I get it, it hurts, but this is one of those moments, you don't cry. Because I don't think anybody like has somebody pass away and goes, hey, don't cry, don't be a baby. Like parents don't do that. But if you fall on your bike, does it hurt? Yeah, all right, get back on. Is that, it doesn't seem cruel to me. Oh, I don't think it's cruel, no, no. I think it's definitely the default. I find myself drawn towards greater degrees of empathy to generate understanding in myself and when i think about why the crying is is as is like archetypally something that in many cases is discouraged what is it it could be that like i'm concerned that that reaction is suboptimal might be entitled could put you in a different situation that could be part of it sometimes the response of don't cry is this is inconvenient <clears throat> to me right now and i want to put a caveat like i'm talking about people that are in a startup that are going to be pushing through major problems this might be the absolute wrong thing to do if you're somebody who's going to be a psychologist like, you know, like, or somebody who needs to be an empath or, mm -hmm. or, you know, whatever, like somebody who needs to be very empathetic in their role, a child psychologist. No, no, no. That's okay. Like, let them experience emotions. They need to live in there and learn it. I think what um, you're highlighting is resiliency. You're highlighting how do you get somebody to be okay with being rejected repeatedly and a lot of that does have to do with the assignment and the you, the meaning that you make up is rejection bad and the point is to avoid rejection or is rejection feedback and is every time i get rejected i'm one step closer to my goal that kind of wiring is absolutely a conversation that i'm wanting to have the thing that i've the path that i've chosen one one mechanism is actually to highlight resilience with my kids and then to kind of tease them a bit in situations by asking and encouraging them to quit. Mm. We're doing so, this was bicycling the other day. We're encouraging. We're, we're, you know, halfway through three quarters of the way. This is all right. I can't do it. Yeah. You should quit. Why don't you go home? 
<laughs> Why don't you go? I'm not Let's brave just enough. Quit. My kids would still quit. <laughs> I need to, I need him to stay on the bike still. Great job. Good job. It takes some framing, but I just read it in I, I somewhere along the way, it that kind of playfulness with it came into my like I know I would relate to you in that way. Like, ah, uh, yeah. Right, you should probably just quit. I, I think we've probably this is probably we've probably gotten past the point. I think this is probably past your limit. You should just <laughs> just pack it up, bro. Just yeah. pack it up. I I would say, but the, but the thing that I do know about it, the people that are at the highest levels or whatever have immense amounts of it. Immense amounts of it, and that chip on the shoulder. There's something about that Ooh. chip on the shoulder, for better bro. or for worse. It's Every, a consistent inevitability. Everyone has the story, by the way. Did you know that? Everyone who has flipped a gear, flipped a gear, they had to have flipped a gear. It doesn't mean they had like this thing. There was a moment when they were a piece of blah, and there was a moment they took off like a rocket. Yeah. There was somebody there, and they can name the name, and everyone that I've talked to that is a high potential that's got one of those, they know the name, they know what it was. It's sometimes you got to help them explore it. But they always exist. The person that they're proving wrong. Yes. And uh, I was talking to VP of Customer Success. He played Division One baseball. Super, super great guy. He's super accomplished. He's like a seven-time national championship RC plane racer. Wild. Like, he was a Division One baseball player, and he manages customer success. It's great. But um, he was telling me about the story, and we were sitting there talking about another em employee and saying, is this a requirement? Like somebody who has to doubt you. And he's like, he like named him. And he's like, you're never going to be a starter. And this is like, he's played like an individual where he's like, and he listed the name. And I forget, it was like first name, last name, 1992. Like, you know what I mean? Like just sick. Like he, you could just almost watch the, mm. I just want to go back there mm. and tell him what I've done. You know mm. what I mean? Like, mm. it's pretty funny. A lot of people have those. I remember the conversation where one of my parents sat me down and said, hey, so this thing you're doing, which is great. Love it. Have you <gasps> Love thought it. about getting a real job? I remember where I was. I remember <clears throat> not flipping out, but I remember that conversation looping over and over mm. and over i i got i got one when someone was when i was like so we were starting property melt so i was like of course you go raise money which apparently it's a lot harder than you think when you just got an idea uh but anyways i was walking down i remember where i was walking down in town i had this guy i remember his name i'm not gonna obviously say it but um he's like hey man i'm just gonna shoot you straight with your background like the school you went to and your degree nobody's gonna give you money he's like i'm just trying to help you I'm just trying to help you. This is my and gift to you. And like, legitimately, like, like, he, he never will remember. Never will remember. Like, it'd be like, hey, do you remember? Do you remember talking? Here's how much money. Like, he'd be like, sorry, who are you? <laughs> but no, it's real. It's real. I've I've gotten to. I can almost when I talk to somebody, you can usually that has flipped a gear. Mm. They have to have flipped a gear. The fuel in the tank that takes us along the way. Yeah. Brother, I loved being on this journey with you. I'm excited mm. to see what you're doing, the boundaries that you're pushing, and the focus that you have on customer value and resolving pain. It's my obsession as well. I'm grateful to be doing this thing with you. Hey, thank you. Thanks for the invite. Until next time. Hopefully in a fourth. Peace. See ya.
That's it for this episode. Hope you enjoyed it. You can check out other episodes along the way. If you're watching this on YouTube, appreciate to subscribe. Any comments, I'm always here to engage. If you're listening on an audio platform, we'd really appreciate a review. It's a great way to help other people find out about the show.